part two, and with the right kind of eyes. Thinking about the Tuskegee syphilis study makes us think about standing on the coast, watching the waves, constant swell up and down, most subsiding against the shore. But every once in a while, a wave will build, swallowing up the smaller ones, growing taller. As you watch, you see it break with a loud crash. And as it settles, it becomes part of the next wave, a perpetual memory. And as Hunter S. Thompson said, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. James Jones, the author of Bad Blood, wrote, Based more on tradition than science, medicine was a fragmented profession, divided into warring sects, each claiming to understand what caused illnesses and each prescribing its own treatment. But physicians, many from the South, all agreed that race was a distinguishing factor in how health should be assessed. Southern physicians claimed the quote-unquote differences that separated blacks and whites were too many, and as James Jones wrote, here, quote-unquote, different unquestionably meant inferior. Southern physicians used data from a now discredited 1840 census to justify the fragility of the African-American race and their dependence on whites. They would even boast about how the actions of slavery helped elevate the lives of African-Americans by removing them and placing them under the guise of Western medicine. James Jones wrote, A standard feature of the vast majority of medical articles on the health of blacks was a socio-medical profile of a race whose members were rapidly becoming diseased, debilitated, and debauched, and as only themselves to blame. While all of that is blatantly untrue and unfounded, it gave supporters of slavery a way to view slavery as a social good, rather than the brutal, inhumane institution it was. These physicians helped propel the narrative that African Americans were highly sexed and prone to sexually transmitted diseases, especially syphilis. A disease that was the result of an individual's willful decisions to have sex. Because of this, physicians believed the responsibility for contracting such a disease was placed on the individual, completely failing to recognize the effects of congenital syphilis, those who were born with the disease, Another way for white physicians to distance themselves from any responsibility they would medically have to blacks. This use of unscientific or anecdotal evidence would be used to draw conclusions about the entire African-American population. Many of these ideas would remain ingrained in our medical culture until the turn of the 20th century, and in many ways still exist today. So if you think that the government gave the men syphilis, it does a certain kinds of work. So it allows you, first of all, to desexualize the uh, disease itself. And as I said to my students, the only thing that, that the men having syphilis meant is that they just didn't have access to condoms. All it means. It doesn't mean anybody was any more sexually active than you and I are. It Absolutely. just means they didn't have condoms. Really, think about it. That's all it means, right? Yeah. So, but if you think that the government gave them syphilis, then you don't have to think about the sort of horrible myths about black sexuality and oversexed black men 
that goes away completely because then they're just innocent victims of a government conspiracy. Um, and I think that the study in some ways is more racist because they didn't give them um, the disease. Because if also if they had given the men disease, then you can really be completely horrified. Then it really makes them, the doctors who do it, into complete like Nazi-like experimenters, right? It's just horrendous. And you don't have to really think about the implications of it. But I think in some ways what the study really is about, and I wrote about this, I actually did an op-ed about this during the um, fight over the Affordable Care Act. And I said, really, if the men had had universal health care and if there had, they had had Medicare for all, right, if they had had the money that gave them access to health care, they never would have been in the experiment in the first place because they never would have said yes. They mostly said yes, of course, because A, they were being lied to, but B, because they were getting health care. During the last decades of the 1800s past the Progressive Era, public health was being taken more seriously at all levels. Health officials conceded that in order to improve the health of white Americans, they would need to improve the health of black Americans as well. The medical profession was becoming more standardized, reaching to be more professional, they emphasized the idea of data to answer their questions. In fact, the amount of medical knowledge gained within these decades would be greater than all of the medical knowledge discovered before. As a result, physicians started to see a relationship between the health of a person and their environment. Ideas about disease change as well. There was growing acceptance that diseases affected everyone equally, regardless of race. These changes were adopted by public health officials first, physicians who were treating African-American patients more often compared to private physicians, who rarely treated them. Eventually, these ideas would trickle down to private physicians, but it would take its time. But that's not to say the idea of racialized medicine went away. Physicians simply adjusted their thinking. The medical community simply started believing that a racist susceptibility to disease was a differentiating factor. Physicians before the Progressive Era were convinced that syphilis would be widespread among African Americans because physicians believed that prophylaxis, essentially condoms, and education would not be enough to combat the disease. 20% was considered an underestimate and you would generally see higher numbers stated with some physicians believing the incidence of syphilis to be 90%. This warped idea would enter the mindset of white Americans as James Jones so perfectly put. These ideas would, quote, lock them within a prison of sickness, whether by accident or design, physicians had come dangerously close to depicting the syphilitic black as the representative black. Public health officials believed in the positive effects of education. They felt it would fix many of the problems suffered by the poor and African Americans. Physicians were also examining the effects of class. Those with a low economic status suffered the same mortality rates regardless of race. But hospitals in poor areas had a reputation for overcrowding and were considered a place for the poor to die. This negative perception kept many away from public health facilities. 
As the public health movement gained recognition across the nation, physicians were reaching out to state representatives, asking them to work within their states and with the federal government. They were also working with various leaders and philanthropies to achieve their goals. Booker T. Washington, the founder of what is now Tuskegee University, would establish a highly successful program that educated African Americans about public health. All of these efforts would coincide with the establishment of the Public Health Service, or PHS. Starting in 1912, it was responsible for all government-related activities regarding public health. The United States Public Health Service, as it exists today, is the product of experience extending over a period of nearly 150 years. It was originally created for the purpose of providing medical care to American merchant seamen. In 1912, the name of the service was changed to that borne by this organization today. The United States Public Health Service. The PHS was focused on several things. Improving how public health was carried out, disbursement of government funds, making sure diseases didn't spread too much, and finally, basic and applied research. We will now hear the Surgeon General briefly outline the work of the Public Health Service. Although the first responsibility for public health rests upon the states and localities in our country, the federal government, through the Public Health Service, does much to prevent disease and to improve the health of all the people. This is done the Public Health Service worked to fill the void left by private physicians, who rarely treated black or poor patients because of a combination of racial prejudice and or economic access. As the United States entered and fought through World War I, physical exams were revealing a high incidence of venereal diseases among soldiers. Fearing that these diseases would hurt their ability to win the war, Congress acted quickly to establish the Division of Venereal Disease within the PHS. Now, the PHS was designed in a peculiar way. Divisions were organized around specific diseases where each division was incentivized to proclaim their chosen disease to be the most dangerous. As opposed to the CDC today, which, for example, groups together infectious and non-infectious diseases. Funding for the PHS during that time was generous, and within a year, they had established state-level bureaus in all but four states across the country, with an emphasis on providing health care for the country's poor, building hundreds of clinics and providing treatment to 64,000 patients who otherwise were unable to afford medical care. The United States Public Health Service joined with the health departments of Georgia and Glynn County to set up such a project. This is not the story of syphilis, the disease, it is the story of public health organization to stamp out syphilis. In Brunswick, the work resembles that of any city. Private doctors are given free drugs to treat all their cases of syphilis, so that those who can afford to pay but little may go to their own doctors. Thus, the private physician treats those who can afford to pay at all. At the health department, a modern public clinic treats 275 patients each week free of charge. Systematic efforts have been made to find syphilis, bring it to treatment. Blood tests are a part of school health examination. Every child here has already been tested. In small communities in the outlying region, the story is the same. Here at St. Simon's, 35 patients come to the clinic each week. Rural doctors receive free drugs and financial aid. 
for the treatment of poorer patients, just as do the doctors of the town. But beyond the town, beyond the doctor's offices, beyond even roads, are the woods. This is a rural land, a land of forests, fewer than 10 people to the square mile, deep in the piney woods. How will one reach these people? How reach those who work at country sawmills, who gather gum from the pine trees and tend the turpentine still? Here are people who have neither means for travel to urban centers nor leisure to travel. The health officer must reach these two if he is to meet his responsibility for the protection of the community. If this mountain will not come to Mohammed, Mohammed must go to the mountain. This would be a short-lived triumph for the PHS. After World War I ended, the government quickly defunded the program as attitudes in the U.S. shifted away from a win-at-all-cost mentality. While the Division of Venereal Disease survived the budget cuts, their ability to shoulder the demands of a national public health system was diminished. As James Jones wrote, sex education, with a heavy dose of moral preaching, became its principal activity, while the development of treatment facilities and clinics across the country were all but abandoned. The PHS learned to survive by adapting to their circumstances instead of folding completely. They did what they could with what they had, a trait they would learn to use to their advantage with the study as well. The initial Tuskegee study didn't even last a full year. It was a pilot study meant to gather data for future studies on syphilis. But as the first phase came to a close, many in the PHS proposed that the study should continue indefinitely because the data found in that initial phase was considered so valuable. This is when the Tuskegee syphilis study would face its darkest timeline. A long-term attempt to control a study with over 600 African-American men as they suffered from a disease thinking the treatment they were receiving was helping when in fact, it was not. The study would continue until its exposure in 1972, but the question is still there. How does it go on for so long? Because the study was known in the medical community. Reports were periodically published over the course of the study in medical journals, penned by authors who were the leaders in the PHS and would sometimes even include Nurse Rivers as a co-author of a study. Questions were raised about the ethics of the study many times. The first, in 1939. Each time a concern was brought up, there would be a flurry of communication between PHS officials asking themselves if the Tuskegee syphilis study had gone too far. With meetings of PHS leaders being convened on no less than five separate occasions, when letters were not enough, once as early as 1939 and the last in 1969, but without fail, the PHS was able to find not only confidence, but an almost stronger belief in the efficacy and importance of the study. This mindset would continue driving the study until it was shut down, with the leaders greenlighting the project year after year, being the doctors who paid their dues, working the yearly roundups for blood draws during the study. They felt connected to the study and believed in its proposed outcome. This self-perpetuated belief about the study through the PHS explains even the most egregious moment of the study, 
The decision to continue withholding treatments even after the discovery of quality and reliable health care for syphilis. Penicillin. Dr. Susan Reverby explained to us why this would be the case. I mean, one of the questions that gets raised all the time is, so after penicillin becomes widely available, why didn't they stop it? You know, why doesn't it stop by the late 40s or early 50s? And I think the best way I try to explain this is I say to people, imagine if tomorrow, so here's, uh, we had a, um, a, an instant cure for um, AIDS, right? And everybody could get it. It would be really cheap and nobody would get AIDS anymore. The disease would not only no longer just be chronic, but we could stop it with one cheap shot. Right, which is essentially what they thought penicillin could do in the late 40s and 50s. And so there's this um, speech that one of the famous, a, a guy named um, Joseph Earl Moore, who I argue is in part the intellectual father of the study and sort of Mr. Syphilis or Dr. Syphilis for the country. And Moore gives a speech right before his death in the early 50s in which he says, I'm really worried that syphilis is going to go away with all of its secrets still withheld from us. So you could imagine if we had an AIDS cure tomorrow in one shot, that everybody would on one hand be absolutely ecstatic, right, that we had wiped this disease out. But on the other hand, all of these millions of people who now have spent 40 years of research, who have all these really interesting questions scientifically about the disease, will never get funded again because the money will dry up which is essentially what was happening around venereal disease in the early 50s, right? The federal money's going away because you're going to prioritize giving the money to something else. Um, and so I think, that, I think that explains the sense of urgency in the 50s and into the 60s of why they kept the study going, because they knew that this was their last chance to have a group of men who, had not been, who supposedly had not all been treated. It's undeniable that the hubris of the PHS was what led the study astray, with humble beginnings of trying to secure further treatment for an area affected by lack of health care, to a study that was operating so deeply within an organization, it had de facto protection and support from the leaders in charge. It would not be until a series of whistleblower complaints, the first from Bill Jenkins, at that time in the 1960s, a statistician for the PHS, brought the case to the media, but didn't include details or context about the claim. So the story died, and the study continued. Then in 1972, all the way in San Francisco, California, Peter Buxton gave the story and background information to Edith Letterer at the Associated Press. And, and she looked at them and she said, uh, if there's anything to this, uh, I'm not the person who should have them. She was in the process of being transferred to the London Bureau of AP, and she was not assigned as an investigative reporter anyway. So on her way, she, she booked her flight to London, so it came through Miami, and she ran up to Miami Beach to the convention site and gave me the letters and then went back to the Miami airport and got on a plane for London. Um, I just glanced at the letters, although I thought they, there might be something to them because she made a lot of effort to, to get them to me. And then I just put them in my briefcase because we were really busy. And I showed them to my editor on the airplane on the way back to Washington after the convention ended. And he read them both twice, as I recall. And he said, they're not denying that this is true. 
And he said, well, as soon as we get back to Washington, to the office, drop everything you've got planned and get right on this. So I did. The rest is history. Part three, on a flight from Washington, D.C. When Gene Heller's story covered the front pages of major newspapers across the country on July 26, 1972, Fred Gray was on a flight from Washington, D.C. when he read the article, tucked away at the bottom left side of the front page under the fold.